Good morning. Merry Christmas. Reflecting on that picture of me there, I look so happy. Well, who wouldn't be happy to pastor all of you good people? So I'm not sure who that is over there, but they're excited. So, well, it's good uh, to be worshiping the Lord together in this season of Advent. And, um, you know, being together, it's good every Sunday to be together and to re- on the Lord's Day to remember his death and resurrection. But there's something that's particularly meaningful and sweet about the, uh, about the, the fourth Sunday of Advent before Christmas as we come to the, the culmination of our season of Advent, our celebration of Jesus' coming, and to be together as a family of God celebrating Christ. It's very good to be here. Well, we're continuing on in our sermon series, Journey to Bethlehem. And we are reflecting on passages from the Old Testament that speak to Christ and his coming, looking at the different aspects of Christ and how he is uh, prophesied about and portrayed. We saw uh, from our first Sunday uh, in January, or sorry, for our first Sunday with the uh, beginning of this uh, sermon series, uh, the coming avenger. Uh, we've seen Jesus as the coming king. We've seen Jesus as the coming comforter. Uh, Today in Isaiah 52 and then all of 53, we see Jesus as the coming sin bearer. In our first uh, sermon with Jesus as the coming avenger, the sermon, if you were here for it, you might recall, but uh, was about how Jesus comes to overthrow the adversary, to right the wrongs that have been done to us, how we stand uh, as human beings who have been victimized Uh, by the evil spiritual powers and how Jesus comes as a champion to defend us and to restore what God had intended. But the reality is, as the pages of the Bible unfold, is that we are not merely victims. Most often those who are wronged in significant and grievous ways turn and wrong others. I finished last week Charles Dickens' David Copperfield. I don't know if you've read it or not. I don't want to spoil it for you, but it is 150 years old. And if you haven't read it by now, I feel like you've no one to blame but yourself. So, but in any case, if you've read uh, David Copperfield, the story is about the life, kind of coming of age of young Copperfield. And his life starts out in sorrow and pain. And his parents die. And he's raised by terrible step-parents and cast out into the cruel world at the age of 10 or 11. And But he always, through it, grows to be this amiable young man who's kind of full of goodwill and good nature. And it's a beautiful story, but it just really isn't how the world works, is it? Because the reality is that when wrongs have been done to us, significant wrongs have been done to us, so often our way of coping with that is to turn and do wrongs to others. For the kids in the room, it might be more familiar to you, but you think about Harry Potter. Harry Potter's another character, kind of like a David Copperfield, who grows up and he's wronged atrociously, goes through great suffering, but somehow maintains this good posture. It's a great story. It's a great film series, but it's just not the reality. We're not only victims in this life, but victimizers, not only abused, but abusers. And one of the things that we long for, the season of Advent, which is a season of longing, a season of anticipation, one of the things we long for is not only to be free from what's been done to us, but to be free from the guilt of what we have done to each other. 
Perhaps you're here this morning and you wonder if you've used up all of God's grace in your life. We wonder if perhaps we've tapped out the well of divine mercy. There's none left for us. Well, as the curtain lifts on the passage that we're looking at this morning, we find Israel in the same spot. In Israel's history, they have rebelled against God. They have turned away from him. God has brought the foreign imperial powers of Assyria and Babylon upon Israel. And they have fallen prey. They have fallen victim to these great imperial powers. But Israel is not just a victim. They are also victimizers of each other. Their sin, in biblical language, has risen to the heavens. And God has given them over to these foreign powers precisely because they have forsaken the love of God, and the love of neighbor. So they are suffering not only from pains of wrongs done to them, but from the pain of wrongs that they have done to themselves. And in Isaiah 52, 53, which has been read for us, God promises to take away the sin and the guilt of his people, to heal them and release them from judgment. He will send his servant to bear the sins of his people, to take upon himself their punishment. And our passage this morning, Isaiah 51, or 52, and then on through 53, if you've grown up in the church, you've been around uh, many an Easter season, you know that this passage is one that's often read on Good Friday. But today we want to look at this text through the lens of Advent, focusing our attention not just on what the servant accomplishes, but even more on who the servant is. What does this text tell us about the identity of the servant? Of course, most of us already know, if you've been in the church any length of time, uh, you already know who the servant is. If you're new to the church, you may not know who the servant is. Don't spoil it for the person next to you if they don't know who the servant is. But either way, I invite you to listen with fresh ears today as though you were one of these wayward Israelites caught in the net of your own sin and your own foolish choices, looking for a way out but finding none, and then the message that Isaiah brings of this servant who will come one day to release you and your people. Listen with fresh ears as though you were one of these wayward Israelites. Because when we come to understand the surprising, even shocking truth about the identity of this coming sin-bearing servant, we get a deeper look into the mercy of God and his great willingness to show compassion and forgiveness. I pray for you all each week as I'm preparing my sermon, and I've been praying for those in particular this morning that feel the crushing weight of their own sin. They feel the, the, the weight and the guilt of wrongs that they have done. I pray that this would be a text that restores in you confidence in God's willingness to be compassionate and gracious to you and forgive. For any that are here as non-Christians this morning, perhaps you've come with a family member or a friend, but you don't normally come to church, don't necessarily call yourself a Christian, I would invite you to listen in as well. Christian or non-Christian, all of us have regrets, we have shames, we have guilt, and listen in as God offers a word of forgiveness even for you too. All right, so as we dig into our text this morning, I want to give just a brief word of 
context as we get our, make our way into it, Isaiah is divided into two main parts, generally speaking. Chapters 1 through 40 would be the first part of Isaiah. It's largely a message of judgment. So if you wake up some morning and you're wanting to have a cup of coffee and pull out your Bible and get a positive and encouraging word from the Lord, I would stay away from chapters 1 through 40 of Isaiah. Chapters 40 through 66, the remainder of Isaiah, is largely a message of God's compassion and his mercy and his restoration and his promise to redeem Israel. And so we find ourselves in the second part of Isaiah. And it's in this second part of Isaiah that a mysterious figure emerges, beginning in chapter 42, but then making its way four more appearances all the way up to our passage here. This servant of the Lord who will be a means of salvation for God's people. Between Isaiah 42 and then Isaiah 52, where we find ourselves this morning, there are four servant songs that speak of this servant who God will send, who will redeem God's people. And so we're looking at the fourth of these four songs. All right, so Isaiah 52 through 53, we see that the Lord will send a servant looking through and summarizing our text, this servant, though innocent, will take upon himself the guilt and the sin and the suffering of God's people. He will bear their punishment. And through his death, he will set God's people free from their sins. Yet his life will not end in death. After he has made an offering for sin, he he will prolong his days, Isaiah prophesies. God will vindicate him and raise him up above his enemies to be seated with the strong. Who is this servant? What clues do we find in Isaiah that reveal the identity of this servant? And what does his identity tell us about God's mercy? To answer this question about the servant's identity, I want to explore three themes throughout the book of Isaiah. Normally when I'm preaching, I like to stay in just one passage of Scripture. But today we're going to kind of do a bit of a a thematic look at Isaiah to make our way back into this text. And there are three important themes that emerge from Isaiah that give us insight into the identity of the servant. And if we just read the passage that's before us without knowing these themes, we're going to miss some things that we would otherwise know and understand. So three themes that help us understand the identity of the servant. All right? Theme number one, it's a major theme in Isaiah, is the theme of the Lord's exclusive exaltation. Theme of the Lord's exclusive exaltation. The Lord alone is exalted. This is a major theme of Isaiah. The first time that we see this theme is in Isaiah's vision of God. In Isaiah 6, uh, 6, verses 1 through 5, this is a famous passage from Isaiah. You don't need to follow into all these passages. You can if you want to. uh, But you can just sit and listen if that's easier for you. But in Isaiah 6, Isaiah is given a vision of God enthroned in the heavens. And listen to this vision. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. 
And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This expression that we see here, high and lifted up, it's used three times in Isaiah. This is the first time that it's used in Isaiah. We're going to come back to the second time it's used in a moment. But the third time is used at the end of Isaiah in chapter 57 as well. Again, describing the Lord as high and lifted up. The one who inhabits eternity and whose name is holy. All throughout Isaiah, we read of other pretenders to glory, other pretenders to exaltation, false gods, kings that have lifted themselves up and proclaimed their own exaltation. And Isaiah is replete with judgment against these pretenders who have pretended to be exalted, pretended to be high and lifted up, pretended to have glory. We read this in Isaiah 2, 10 through 17. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from before the splendor of his majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low and the lofty pride of man shall be humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low, against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, and against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, and against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower, and against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, and against all the beautiful craft. And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled." And the lofty pride of men shall be brought low. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Major theme throughout Isaiah is this idea of the exclusive exaltation of the Lord. The Lord alone is high and lifted up. And the Lord alone will be exalted. It's the first theme. The second theme is this. This theme regarding the arm of the Lord. One of the things that we see throughout Isaiah is the frequent reference to the strong arm of the Lord. All throughout Isaiah, we see that God will save his people by his strong arm. It's a metaphor that's used frequently. I'll give you a few instances in Isaiah 30. The Lord will cause his majestic voice to be heard and the descending blow of his arm to be seen. In furious anger and a flame of devouring fire with the cloudburst and storm of hailstorms, the Assyrians will be terror-stricken at the voice of the Lord when he strikes with his rod. Battling with brandished arm, he will fight them. Israel's enemies are the Assyrians, and God will come to vindicate his people. He will come to rescue them, and when he comes, he will brandish his arm upon the Assyrians. He will have a descending blow of his arm in furious anger to deliver his people. Isaiah 51, My righteousness draws near, says the Lord. My salvation has gone out, and my arms will bring justice to the peoples. The coastlands hope for me, and my arm they wait. Isaiah 51, 9, a few verses later, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in days of old, the generations of long ago. And again in Isaiah 52, a chapter later, Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. 
For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. The scriptures speak occasionally about the hands of the Lord, about the hands of the Lord doing things, making things. But when the scriptures speak about the arm of the Lord doing something, it's a reference both to God's power and might, and it's also a way of saying that God himself is involved. Sometimes God would send angels to accomplish his purposes. But when God bears his own arm and steps into the fray, he himself is present. It's his arm, after all. So when we see the expression arm of the Lord in Isaiah, we know that God himself is present and he is powerfully acting to bring salvation to his people. So the first theme is the exclusive exaltation of the Lord. The second theme is this theme of the Lord's strong arm coming to save. This final theme is one of a lack of intercession and the need for God himself to intercede on behalf of sinful humanity, the necessity of God's intercession. Israel has turned away from God, and tragically, there is no one to intercede anymore between Israel, fallen Israel, and a holy God. God says this in chapter 43, your fathers sinned against me. That's bad, but it gets even worse. And your mediators transgressed against me. Not only have the people sinned, but those whom God has put in between himself and the people to mediate between sinful people and a holy God, they themselves are compromised and sinful. Those who would mediate between God and sinful Israel are in the same dock as sinful Israel. What is to be done? God himself will have to intercede. Isaiah 59, Isaiah the prophet laments the condition of the people. Listen to what he says. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, he prays, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying the Lord, turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words, justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The situation is very dire. Then Isaiah goes on to say, the Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede Listen to this. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. God looks at his people. He looks to the intercessors of his people, and he sees nothing there that can bridge the gap between himself and his people. The, bridge, the gap between sinful Israel and himself is a gap that's too big for Israel to bridge from their side. So God bridges it from his side, from his side, God himself becomes the intercessor between himself and his people. So to review these themes that we see. One, or first, God alone is high and lifted up. God alone will be exalted. 
Second theme, God will save by his own strong arm. He will involve himself personally in the redemption of Israel from their sins. And then this third theme of intercession, God himself will make intercession between sinful humanity and himself. God will be the intercessor. All right, so we come back to Isaiah 52, 13, and then all of 53, looking at these themes and then coming back to our text. Look in verse 13 of Isaiah 52. The first thing that's said of this servant, behold, the Lord says, my servant shall act wisely. And then look at this. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. No one in Isaiah is high and lifted up and exalted except God. All others he lays low. And yet here's the servant of the Lord being high and lifted up and exalted. We go on to read further in our passage down to 53, verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And then it goes on to describe the servant. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground, and on it goes. And what Isaiah is telling us here is that the servant is the revealed arm of the Lord. When the Lord rolls up his sleeve and bears his holy arm, what we see is the servant that the Lord has sent. So the servant is the arm of the Lord. And then finally, at the end of our passage here, the very last verse, this servant who is high and lifted up and exalted. This servant who is the arm of the Lord bared to deliver God's people. This servant, we read, has poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and he makes intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah tells us that God looked out upon Israel and could find no intercessor, so he himself became the intercessor. And now we read that the servant is the intercessor. Who is this one who will be high and lifted up and exalted? Only God is high and lifted up, and he alone will be exalted. Who is this one who will come as the arm of the Lord himself? Who is this one who will make intercession for humanity because of their sin? Only God can make intercession for sinful humanity. In ways that would have been shocking to the original readers of Isaiah's day, but that have now been made more clear to us through the advent of Jesus, but is no less shocking for it, we see that the servant of the Lord is somehow, that the servant of the Lord is somehow Israel's God himself come to make atonement for Israel's sins. Of course, from a New Testament perspective, we know that the servant is Jesus, the Son of God made flesh, God of God, light of light, as our creeds remind us. The human relationship that exists between a father, a human father, and a human son which is analogous to or points towards the relationship between God the Father and God the Son, it, it falls short of conveying the depth of the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. As we come to the 
season of Advent and we think about Christ coming. And we, we think about Christ coming as one who's been sent by the Father. And sometimes we can think about that in perhaps two human terms. If I, as a father, send my son to do something, I remain where I am while the son, my son, goes to do the thing that I've sent him to do. But the relationship between God the Father and God the Son is, it expands beyond the limits that we have in our human relations. That when God sends the Son, when the Father sends the Son, he's not sending the Son independent of the Father, but he himself comes to us through the coming of the Son. So that Jesus can say, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. And as we celebrate the season of Advent, and we celebrate this one who comes to bear our sins, it'd be wrong for us to think that somehow God the Father remains far removed off in the heavens and has sent the Son to do the dirty work, while he himself keeps his hands unsullied and clean. But God himself comes to us, our Lord comes to us in the servant of the Lord in ways that outstrip our capacity to understand, let alone fully articulate, the persons of the Trinity, while remaining distinct, dwell within each other. And now we're entering into a deep mystery, the mystery of the Christian faith, the high and holy idea. And it's hard to speak here at this point without speaking wrongly. But what Isaiah's prophecy teaches us is that the Lord of Israel, in giving Israel his servant gave Israel himself. Or to put it in New Testament terms, Advent terms, God the Father in giving us his son gave us himself. God has through his own holy arm made intercession on our behalf and has secured our forgiveness. All right, so what does this mean for us Poor lost sinners here on the fourth Sunday of Advent, 2018. What does God's direct involvement in securing our forgiveness matter for us? What does it matter that he got personally involved himself in reconciling us to him? I think what this precious text reminds us of today is the extent to which God is for us and longs to be gracious to us. God doesn't just send a ram trapped in a thicket like he did with Abraham and Isaac. Do you remember the story of Abraham and Isaac? Abraham is told to sacrifice his son Isaac. Abraham goes up to the mountain and just as he's about to plunge the knife, it was a test and God says, don't do it, Abraham. I've provided a lamb. There's a ram trapped in the thicket that is the substitute. God doesn't just provide a ram as a substitute. Through Jesus, he became our ram. This means that God is for us in the most profound ways. So what sins haunt you this morning? What mistakes keep you up at night? There are some things that we've done that we can put right, ways that we've wronged or hurt other people that we can make recompense for. But sometimes we can't make amends. There are things that we've done that we can't undo, things that we've said that we can't unsay, 
years that we have wasted that we can't get back and what we wouldn't give for a do-over at certain aspects of our lives. And no amount of saying I'm sorry can fix it or make it like it didn't happen. Perhaps you've committed grievances against someone who refuses to forgive. You know you're wrong and you were in the wrong and you have laid yourself out and asked for forgiveness, but it has not come. The bitterness and the pain that you have caused is too great. Perhaps you've sinned against those who can't forgive you because they no longer live to give their forgiveness. And they took into the grave the regret that you have of the ways that you have hurt them and cannot ever be released from, it would seem. However great your sin, however insurmountable the debt that you have accrued, God is sufficient to redeem. One of the good news of the gospel is that all sin is against God. However much we might hurt each other, however many times we wrong each other, at the end of the day, fundamentally, all sin is against God. Because the sin against each other is the sin against one who is made in the image of God, and the offense and the grievance ultimately finds its way to the feet of God. But that's good news. That's good news because it means that God can forgive and has the right to forgive all sins, even sins that we've done to each other, even the sins that we've done to each other where that person refuses to forgive us. The real offense of our sin lays with God and he is willing to forgive. If sin ultimately wasn't against God, we would be at the mercy of each other. But sin ultimately is against God, and we are at God's mercy, and he has shown himself to be merciful. He has cut his own holy arm and shed his own blood for us. The one who made all things, who sustains all things, the one to whom all allegiance is due, he alone has the right and the authority to forgive and release us from sin. And he is willing, even eager to do so. What sin have you committed that, that God can't atone for? The answer is none. Between services, I was talking with folks and a, and a number of people said, oh, it's so convicting. Oh, I've, I've sackcloth and ashes. And I was surprised because I meant this sermon not to be a sermon to heap upon all of us a sense of our own shame and guilt. I think that's appropriate, but I don't want to leave us in that spot. It's not the message this morning. The message this morning is that we find ourselves in that place, but God comes to us in grace. He comes to us in mercy. He comes to us to forgive us. Advent reminds us that there is freedom in Christ not only freedom from the wrongs done to us, but even more sweetly, freedom from the wrongs that we have done to each other. So be free this morning. Rest in the sin-bearing arm of your gracious Father. Make amends where you can. Set things right as you are able. Say Say you're sorry where you need to. But in all of it, trust that you are loved and forgiven 
by the only one whose love and forgiveness really matters. Close out with a word from Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 46. The Lord is mocking the the false gods of the pagan nations and the ones that Israel is tempted to chase after. And the Lord mocks them. He says, Bel bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and on livestock. These things you carry are borne as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. The picture here is of these pagan idols who have been taken over by foreign powers and they're loaded up on top of oxen and donkeys and they're carried out of their vanquished city. And God mocks these idols who have to be carried. He says, listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he. And to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. I will carry and will save. The pagans had gods that they had to carry that were a burden to them. But we have a God that does not ask us to carry him, but rather a God who carries us, who carries us in our sin, who carries us in our brokenness, who carries us in our regret. This is the good news of Advent this morning, that as Jesus the sin bearer draws near to us, he draws near to us as the heart and the presence and the person of the Father. Our Heavenly Father doesn't stand removed and far off, kind of bad cop that Jesus is good cop, holding the line on justice and righteousness while Jesus tries to work the angles to get us in. Jesus is the expression of the Father's heart to forgive and to save and to redeem, and he carries us in our brokenness. Not every consequence of every sinful action that we do is taken away in this life. But the hope that we have as we approach Advent, this season of waiting and reminding ourselves of this Advent to come is that that there is coming a day that, that, that God will remove all of our sin, and even in ways that defy our capacity to understand now, will remove even the consequences or the harsh realities of our sins. God is faithful to forgive us. He loves us, and he will restore and redeem. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you that you have given us Christ, and thank you even more that in giving us Christ, you gave us yourself. You did not stand far off and removed, scowling down from heaven, frustrated with us and asking us to pull ourselves up our bootstraps, but you have bared your holy arm. You have given us your son, and in giving us your son, you have given us yourself and you have brought us back to yourself. God, thank you for the forgiveness and the mercy and the grace that is in Christ. Thank you for redeeming us when we could not redeem ourselves. Thank you for forgiving us when others won't forgive us. Thank you that we have the hope of the world to come in which all things are made new and all the tears of regret 
and shame are at last wiped away. God, we long for that day. We thank you that it has dawned with Christ. We long for his return, and we pray for it in his name. Amen.